I am glad that you're here today, whether you're in this room, whether you're one of the many, many that join us online. I want to welcome you. We are in this study called Beyond Religion. And it is a deep dive look into the epistle, the letter of 1 Peter. It's a book in your Bible, and that's the name that it goes by. In fact, as Scott Seal already mentioned, we've got uh, journals available for you. And so if not, if you don't have a journal, that's fine. Open up the Bible that you tend to bring or on your phone. You can find our scriptures on our scripture resources at westernhills.church. But we want you to follow along because what Peter describes is so relevant for us today. We're talking about the challenges of what it means to have faith in the culture that we currently live in. I shared early on in this that one of the things that I observed, and I've observed it especially in my age group and down, is that there is now a deconstructing of faith. And that's what Rachel mentioned earlier. In deconstructing faith, it's not the problem that you question your faith or you ask questions of your faith. It's when you so take it apart and then you dispose of it. And many have done that or are in the process of doing that. And again, I mentioned that you can go on to uh, YouTube and find a, just a deep rabbit hole that you want to go down as far as if you start seeking deconstruction testimony, uh, deconverting testimony. And it seems that we now live like the culture that Peter lived in, where our culture holds no obligation to support or encourage people with faith. And in fact, we live at odds with it. Last week, we talked about to move beyond religion, you have to have a living hope. That's why that song is just so powerful, is because we have a living hope in the one of Jesus. So today, I want to talk about moving beyond religion to holiness. Now, that already sounds churchy to begin with, doesn't it? You know, it's like, it's like the old joke. Cleanliness is next to what? No, it's next to impossible. <laughs> Do you not have children? It's next to impossible. And yet, there's a critique that those of us that worship, those of us that believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, oftentimes there's a critique that says, well, you're just holier than thou. You're, you're just a goody two-shoes. You're just trying to be better than everybody else. And so I want to talk about this concept of holiness today because this is what Peter talks about as he's trying to write to a group of Christians that, remember, they're not in their homes. They feel like they're foreigners in a strange land. Now, they get their mail there. They speak the language, but it still doesn't feel like home. They are out of place even though they're in their place. Ever feel like that? And Peter's going to call them to holiness, and we're going to unpack that second part of chapter 1 today. But it's beyond religion to holiness because the struggle that so many people have then and now is when they start thinking about religion and faith, 
it seems like, or they've got a world that's constructed off of, religion means that you're a rule keeper. And unfortunately, guys that, have, that do what I do, sometimes we've so simplified it or boiled it down, the way we've talked about it, what we communicate is that God's greatest desire is that he sits up in heaven and he watches all of his children follow the rules. If they will just keep the rules, that'll be fine. And we lose something when that becomes all of what religion is. And so Peter's going to call us to move beyond religion into holiness. And what we're going to unpack today is that holiness involves a relationship. In fact, every time we move beyond religion, you're going to see it as an exchange of, of one paradigm, one worldview that's limited, that can easily be disposed of, deconstructed, and it should be. But he wants something else in his place. He wants to construct something, and he wants to build in this relationship, and a relationship based on holiness. Not, we've got to be careful, not to earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor. We'll let Peter, who will do a much better job than I will, talk about this. I'm about to read this passage, and we're going to start in verse 13 if you want to find it in your journals or in your Bible. But before we get to that, I need to give you a definition, because you may not know this, because we use holy in so many different ways. But here is what the word holy means. It means set apart. It does not necessarily, as core, mean good all the time. It, it, it doesn't mean that, that you're, it doesn't simply mean you're just a moral person. It means you're a set apart things. And, and you, we understand this. In marriage, we've, maybe it's a little bit of a dated term now, but you've heard it referred to as holy matrimony. It doesn't mean it's a perfect marriage. What it means is it's a set apart, that there are, there's one spouse and another spouse, and they are dedicated to each other. They're set apart for each other. And there's a few things in our life like this. There's a lot of things that I'm willing to share in my life. You can come eat at my table. You can borrow my car. What you can't use is my toothbrush because it's set apart. For me, And there's a holiness that God's calling us to, and it's a set-apartness over and against the culture. And he's going to call us this, but every time you hear the word holy, I don't want you to hear just a moral good, but a set-apart, a distinct people, as we're going to find out, a peculiar people with this. You're going to see a couple of highlighted words. We're going to go through a few of these passages, and then I'm going to come back to some of these highlighted words and what they mean for us. But if you want to make some notes as we go along, I definitely invite you to do that. I want you to hear this reading first. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, 
you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways that, in, that you inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter is sharing a teaching. And then he begins to quote scripture. And the whole point of the scripture is, the whole point of the teaching is, God is calling his people, for those that want to follow the person of Jesus, that believe that he is who he says he is, that he is Lord, there is now a calling on their life, and it's the calling to be holy. Now again, the calling is not to be rule keepers. So many, and maybe this is what you struggle with because you're still kind of on the fence of whether or not you're going to lean in and fully trust Jesus, is what you really think is being a part of church, being a follower of Jesus, what God most wants is rule keepers. And that really has you back on your heels, and I don't blame you. It should. If God's whole relationship with you was based on your performance of being able to keep the rules, it should have us all back on our heels. The call to be holy is not the call to work yourself into your own salvation. This is why last week in Peter's letter... He started with this idea that we just sang a song about. It's Peter's words that give us living hope. There is a living hope that we have. The call to be holy is not the call to earn your salvation, earn God's attention, earn God's affection. God's affection is already on you. God has done the work. He sent Jesus to experience the grave rise again, and now we have not just a hope, but what Peter very clearly states is a living hope. And so the first thing that I want you to know, and if you don't hear anything past this moment, walk away with this, please. A living hope leads to holy living. The more you come to understand the hope that you have in Christ the more your life will be transformed into this, but not the other way around, not to where you, if you will somehow get your life all together, then you can have the living hope. It's an understanding and appreciation of and coming to grips with the fact that you have a living hope that leads to holy living. See, see Christians are often, maybe you've heard this, but we're often criticized. And I started off this sermon this way, oh, you're holier than thou. You just think you're better than the rest of us. 
somewhere we really messed up our message because the central claim of what it means to be fallen a Christian is not that I'm better than you. The central claim is that I'm so messed up, I needed a Savior. That's the claim that we make. It's not holier than thou. It's I'm holy because of thou. That's where my hope lies. Not in some performance-based. And I know we get so trapped in that idea of it being performance-based. And we hear the word holy and we think that equals performance. That does not. That's a set apartness that God is calling his people into. An invitation is for you. And a living hope leads, produces in your life, holy living. So, as it produces this, and this is one thing that we face now and Peter was facing then. And we might as well come to grips with this because I don't want you to be sold a bill of goods that's not true. When Jesus is your living hope and you're called into this life of holy living, we have to understand this one true fact. Following Jesus will make you weird. This is not culturally approved. Remember in chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, Be ready to give an answer for the hope. His theme is consistent throughout. For the hope that you have in Jesus. And he is saying that because people will come up and say, I don't understand why you choose the, the way, to live the way that you live because it strikes me as wholly and completely irre, um, irrelevant. It doesn't even seem practical. The way you do your taxes doesn't make sense. The way you run your business seems like you could lose money in the process. The way you treat others, the way you enter into relationships, the way you regard sex, none of it seems to make sense. Why would you choose to live that way? And God is wanting a holy people that will live set apart from the world with the reality and the knowledge that they will be odd, they will be peculiar, and there'll be a, a difference between how they live. And this was absolutely true in Peter's day and the first couple hundred years of Christianity. This was... This was amazingly true. I, I've shared what I'm about to share with you before, but as I prepared for this message, this seemed too important not to come back to, especially with what Peter's trying to tell us. In that book that I quoted last week, uh, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer uses the research of a man named Dr. Larry Hurtado, who during his life, he passed away not too long ago, but during his life was the foremost scholar in the world on the first couple of hundred years of early Christianity. And he had a massive research project where he asked the question, why in the world did Christianity ever make it out of the first century? It wasn't well-funded. It didn't have political power. It didn't have an army. It wasn't well-organized. 
There is no sociological reason that it should have made it out of the first world, but not only out of the first century, but not only did it make it out of the first century, it toppled the Roman government and the Roman state because of the way the Christians chose to live. They were oppressed at every turn, beginning in Peter's day, and yet something about them was rebellious, and it toppled and changed the world. And as he did that research, there were five things that the church lived out that made it unique and distinct. And I want to share those with you because I think this is so informative. And so here, here they are. Number one is this. The church was multiracial, multiethnic. Nowhere else in the first century did the church, did, except at the church, did you experience this crossing of cultures and ethnicities, this mingling as you did on the same level with the church. It was a, a system built on class and rank and priority and all these other values. And yet at the church, you've got this melting pot and the church led the way in that. Number two is this. The church was spread across socioeconomic lines with a high value caring for the poor. Those with extra were expected to share with those with less. The church was the first place charity became charities. It was in the church where hospitality and care for those that had less began to take root. It was at the church that... that, um, uh, hospitals even rose up because they were caring for those in a way that the society and the culture was not. With a great concern for those that had less. And it was, became strangely common in an uncommon place for those that had a lot and those that had almost nothing to sit together at the same table. This did not happen anywhere else. It was unique to the church because they were living holy lives and it began to change the world. Number three is this. The church was staunch in its active resistance to infanticide and abortion. The church placed a value on life that the common culture did not. Abortions were common. What was even more common was the practice this infanticide it was the practice of exposure. If you had a child that you did not want, that usually meant it was a girl. You could take it down and leave it exposed to the elements and to the wild animals. You just abandoned the child. It was called exposure. The church started going around to these human dumps where these children were left, and they would collect them. This is how the first orphanages began. And they would gather them and they would care for them, even though they didn't have a lot of means themselves because they came predominantly from the lower class of society. They were, because they were committed to sharing and living differently, they valued life, and so they stepped in and created orphanages and children's homes, eventually is what they became, but it was all to circumvent what society was doing. And they were passionate about that. And it was weird, and it was odd at the time. Fourth one was this. The church was resolute 
in its vision of marriage and sexuality between one man and one woman for life. We have the definition and the vision of marriage that we have today because of Christianity. Where we see marriage as what it should be as a safe place, this is not what marriage was back in Peter's day. When a woman entered into marriage, she entered into being property. And like her whole existence would be dependent on, on her husband. And sex was transactional. It, it was played out in systems of power. And whoever without power was simply at the pleasure of the one with. And so along comes these teachings of Jesus and the church and the Christians were beginning to echo this. No, you have value. And there was a call on a Christian husband to love his wife as Jesus loved the church, showing her this love and this protection, which completely was radically different than anything else in the world. If you had used the term Christian marriage, unfortunately, today, it seems like it's this very limiting and binding thing, at least out in popular culture. Why would you ever want one of that? There wasn't a woman in the first century that wouldn't have wanted and sought out a Christian marriage because of the call and the challenge and the exhortation on the men to be God's person inside this marriage, which was completely different than what the world was saying. See, we've gone through the sexual revolution now. And we've taken promise and commitment and children and everything else out of the equation. And so sex is simply just sex. And has it served us well at all? Not by any statistic that I can find. And so that which was intended to be so freeing to us has become a prison all in of itself. And we're paying the price. And some of you know the price very personally because it's your story or it's your parents' story, or it's something from your family. But the church early on said, we will be different. And it was odd to the world. Why would you ever take that deal? And the last one's this. Church was nonviolent, both on a personal level and a political level. When everything else in the world was... If you hit me, I will hit you back harder. And it was all based on how hard you could retaliate and how hard you could push back. And if you had to do it with force, you did it with force. If you had to do it with manipulation, you did it with manipulation. If you had to do it with wealth, you did it with wealth. Whatever it took to punch back, you punched back because the order had to be maintained. And here were Christians saying, we're not playing that game. We're not going to fight back in the same way. 
And what's crazy to think is this is how the church existed for the first couple hundred, three hundred years. And you wouldn't have bet on them changing the world. I mean, you don't bet on the group of people when the government says, we will put you to death, and they say, okay, but we're not renouncing our king. You don't think they come from a place of strength, and yet because they had a living hope, it pulled out of them this holy living, and it changed the world in which they lived. That's what God's calling for. Because this is why Peter would encourage them to hang on to their faith, but don't live it out like anybody else. Live it out distinct and holy, because when you live out this faith, when you're willing to be odd for God, when you're willing to be this weird for Jesus, there is a blessing that comes, not just to you. You have the living hope, but there's a blessing that comes to the world. So the other thing that I want you to know is, lived out holiness is a blessing to the world. The church... Most serves the world, not when we look like the world, but when we are the church that's holy. Because there is a blessing that the world receives. Jesus gathered a group of his early followers, and it was a ragtag bunch. And he stood on a hillside with the Sea of Galilee at the bottom, and he gave a sermon. And in that sermon, he said, Blessed are you. You're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. And he told them that how you live your life will light the dark world in which you exist. And by you being you, you being the one with the living hope, the one that's living holy in this world, you'll bring light to it and you'll be salt to it, which means you'll prevent decay from coming. Imagine how quickly this world would decay if it were not for people of faith. Whatever family you're in, even if you say, I'm the only believer in my family, God is using you to hold back the decay. Whatever sports team you're on, whatever office you work at, whatever your classroom looks like, whatever your neighborhood would be, if you live out holy faith in that, you bring a blessing there because there is a light there and there is a preventative from the world just going to rot that you bring in that. This is why it matters. This is why God is calling his children and says, be holy as I am holy. Not be holy to earn my holiness, but be holy because I've made you holy. And it's in that that you bless the world. Christians are called to bless those, serve those, even the ones we disagree with. That's our blessing. That's what we offer the world. And it is just as powerful now as it was in the first century when Peter called these people that were displaced. They did not feel at home. They were clearly citizens of another kingdom to live this way, even with all of its impracticalities. And so as we bless the world, it means that we engage into the world The temptation is often in church is to think that what we really need to do is we need to remove ourselves from the world. We need to get into our little fortress and we need to um, 
hunker down and huddle up, right? That's not what Peter tells them. He, he calls them to be out in the world. And so what you need is the call of holiness is to be distinct. Not distant, though. You're not called to shut off your connections to those that believe something different than you. You're not called to exclude people just because they don't seem to follow the same faith that we do. You realize we're never granted that opportunity? So this is not a message from Peter or from me that says what we need to do is we just need to get all the faithful people in one room together, shut out, and then we talk about all the bad people out there, all the culture out there. No. We are called into the world to be salt and light to it, to be distinct from it. Be clear on that. We're called to be distinct from it not participate in its value system, but not distant either. So many of you would have a loved one that's adopted a lifestyle or made some choices that breaks your heart. And maybe you've never even asked the question out loud because you're too ashamed to, but you're wondering, do I need to cut off relationship now? Can I even invite them to Thanksgiving now? Jesus showed up at the homes of tax collectors and sinners, and he just didn't seem to have a problem with it. And was he distinct from them? You bet. But he was never distant. Peter changes right at the end of this passage that we just read. And he shifts into what I would call the fuel for this. The way that you would adopt into this thinking. So if you would, go back to your scriptures real quick. I want to pick it up in verse 22. And he's going to talk about how you can live this way. What can fuel this. And he makes an important point. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for the sincere brotherly love, love one another. He's going back to Jesus' command. And Peter was there the night that Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. Earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He says, there's a word that you've received. There's a teaching that you have. And then he goes on and describes it, and he quotes this poem. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, especially in Texas without summer, but we just had rain. Amen. The grass withers and, flower, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now watch what he does. So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. 
He says, get rid of all malice, all envy, all slander, all jealousness. Now, oftentimes we'll find some scriptures or we'll find some lists in the New Testament and it gives a list of kind of the bad sins. I don't like this list because I fall on each one of those things. I want a list that says, okay, don't murder. Okay, I haven't done that. I'm good. But he says, don't fall into this. Be a different people. And the way you do that is you feed on the word of God. He says that your diet matters. And so that's why he uses this illustration of just like a baby is going to consume and crave rich spiritual milk. That's what I want you to do. I want you to feed on that and be in God's Word. It's so tempting to see God's Word is irrelevant and impractical, but he says, no, I want you to be deep into that. Your diet says a lot about you, right? You know, it's like we know where you're from. I like finding out where people are from and seeing what kind of foods that they grew up on and what they eat, you know. You know so if you come from a place in Mexico, you know, one of my favorite. Mexican food, obviously. You know, if you come from a different part, you know, Louisiana, it's, it's got some Cajun food. Tell me about Cajun food. If you come from the Deep South, we've got two words, barbecue, deep fried. It's, that's our, our diet, you know. But it tells you something about it. It tells something about where you're from. What he's saying is, I want you to live off of a diet of God's word because that declares where your home is and your home is in a kingdom that's coming. That's what he wants. So here, here, here's a principle for you. What you consume, you will assume. What you consume you will assume. If I did nothing but listen to gossip about you, I'm going to draw some unfair assumptions about you, right? If you did nothing but listen to gossip about me, you would draw some unfair assumptions about me. Whatever you consume, you start to assume about that. And so if our diet is all about gossip, it's all about slander, it's all about listening to one side of the political discussion and not the other, it's all about fear. You're going to start making some assumptions, right? What Peter is saying is find the core of your diet in God's word and then your assumptions will lead you into a living hope, which is where he started this whole thing. We've got to be committed to God's word. I never want you to simply take what I say for granted. I want you in God's Word. That's why we provide the Scripture journals. Because we see that as core to this belief. As we try to live out this holy life, it's going to cause us to be distinct and odd. And we're going to hold some positions and we're going to have some teachings that are going to seem at odd with one another. At odd with the culture, sure. And it, we may get picked on and pushed around. But that's the call there. One of them is this. We live in a world that culture has all kinds of pressures right now when it comes to same-sex relationships. 
And, and the criticism that comes at us is, you hate us. Now, I'm going to be fair. I can't speak for every church out there because I know that some ungodly things have been done in the name of Jesus. Good night with free love. But I would suggest that that's a church that's assumed something besides God's word. Because the truth is this. Because of God's word, and if we're going to live our lives in submission to it, because of God's word, we cannot hate. We are not given the latitude to hate. It is Jesus himself that says, love your enemies. I don't know how more plain that can be. And it is God's word that prevents us from affirming. God's word will not let us hate. And God's word will not let us affirm. And we're not prepared to rewrite it because that's not our job. So what we are called to is that difficult task that lies right in the middle. And Jesus was so good at this, but we're very, we struggle with this. And here's the last call that holiness makes on our life. Holiness calls us to both truth and grace. Holiness calls us to truth. What God calls us to, to be a holy set apart people, because that's his invitation to us, and be grace-filled in it. Because remember, we were the ones that were slanderous and malice and gossipy and evil and consumed with all kinds of lust, and he came along with his grace and saved us. Jesus comes in contact with a woman. He's teaching at the temple. And he's interrupted by a crowd of people that come and they throw a half-dressed woman at his feet. And she's been caught in adultery. And while most of the guys around pick up rocks because they're all about truth and they're going to stone her, Jesus kneels down and begins to scribble something in the dirt. And he asks the question, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. And they realize that they've been caught up in that moment. And so they begin to drop the rocks and make their way. Until it's just Jesus and this woman. And they're standing there alone. And he stands her up. And I don't even know if she's made eye contact with him this whole time. But he stands her up and he says, where's those that have accused you? And she says, they're gone. He says, well, I don't accuse you either. A word of grace. He spoke a word of grace when she expected stones to hit her body. He says, I don't accuse you either. And he says, now leave your life of sin. He spoke a word of truth. Jesus could hold grace and truth very comfortably. We need to be able to. So I'm going to challenge you. The only way we get there is to be in God's word. So what are you consuming? Because your diet matters as we try to live as a holy and distinct people. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, 
I pray that the church, your church, your people, that we would be distinct again. And even in the midst of the waves of culture, that we would, we would be a holy people, not because we're better than anybody else, but because we're in such need of the hope that you bring. Father, help us to be people that hold up truth and help us to be people that hold up grace and help us to be the light and the salt to the world. Father, I pray for anyone here that's been caught up and they think that what you want is rule-keeping instead of holy living. Father, may you begin a work in our hearts today to change that perspective that we would have the living hope that comes from Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.